You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Marriage Equality was having a good run there for a while. Um, we got New Zealand, Uruguay, France. Looks like we're getting the United Kingdom in the next week. So that's four countries. Um, all went for marriage equality. And in the United States, since Brian Brown came to my house for dinner and said that their side was winning, Maine, Maryland, Washington State all legalized marriage for same-sex couples at the ballot box. Rhode Island, Delaware and Minnesota – Minnesota, in addition to turning down, saying no to an anti-gay marriage amendment to its state constitution, turned around and approved marriage equality, turned around and legalized same-sex marriage in Minnesota, Delaware, Rhode Island. So six states really and it looked like we'd get a seventh since Brian Brown came to dinner at my house. We looked like we were going to get Illinois but that was a heartbreaker and a squeaker and it failed in the house. And this is a detail that many people weren't aware of when it failed in the house. The log cabin Republicans – the organization for lick spittle toadies who uh, spend their days picking the kernels of corn out of the turds laid by the Republican Party. They will find that kernel of corn. It doesn't matter how big the dump is. We can count on the log cabin Republicans to dig through it until they find that kernel of corn and they did it in Illinois. The head of the log cabin Republicans put out a press release after marriage equality failed in Illinois slamming the betrayal of the Illinois Democrats. They had betrayed the gay community and not getting this to the floor for a successful vote. And then the log cabin Republicans on their mission to find that kernel of corn and the giant turd that is constantly being laid on the heads of LGBT Americans by their co-party folks, by their fellow Republicans, went on to praise Republicans in the Illinois House. After condemning the betrayal of Democrats, they said that that betrayal should not diminish the courage of Republican representatives Ed Sullivan and Ron Sandak, who both pledged to vote for marriage should it reach the floor. There are 47 Republicans in the Illinois House, two pledged to support marriage equality. There are 71 Democrats in the Illinois House, dozens and dozens and dozens pledged to support marriage equality. But the Democrats betrayed gay people and the Republicans should be praised because two of those motherfuckers, two kernels of corn in that giant shit that the Republican Party took on gay people in Illinois could be found by the log cabin Republicans. So yay for the Republicans. Two out of 47 supported marriage equality. This is the game the log cabin Republicans and go proud these, these gay conservative groups play with unsuspecting gay voters, lesbian voters who may not be paying strict attention. They will find that kernel of corn in the shit and say, look, delicious. Let's make popcorn, watch a movie and not pay any attention to the fact that the GOP, the Republican Party is your mortal enemy and they're doing everything they can to make sure that you are not equal under the law, which brings us to fuckstick of the day, Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio is the senator from Florida. He's leading the charge, leading the campaign for bipartisan immigration reform. And just this week, he said, I'm done with immigration reform if the bill contains a clause for same-sex couples. We talked about this on the show last week. Binational same-sex couples cannot get green cards. They cannot sponsor their uh, husbands, legally wed husbands or wives in many cases for residency because of the Defense of Marriage Act and immigration reform is working its way through 
the Congress and there is this effort to include same-sex couples in that reform and to allow legally married same-sex couples to sponsor their spouses for residency, for green cards. And Rubio is saying that he will torpedo his own immigration reform if it is amended to include the 36,000 binational same-sex couples who right now are living in exile or being forcibly separated when their partners are deported. He will shit-can it because – and I'm quoting here – if this bill has something in it that gives gay couples immigration rights and so forth, it kills the bill, Rubio said. I'm done. I'm off it. As I've said repeatedly, I don't think that's going to happen and it shouldn't happen. Now, the Go Proud boys and the log cabin corn pickers will be back at us in 2016 to say, oh, Rubio's because he's probably going to run for president. We should support Mark Rubio because he's not entirely terrible on our issues and you know he once voted this way on this obscure bill or this obscure amendment. Remember this. Remember Rubio saying, I am done. I am willing to stab in the back all these immigrants I claim to care about so much if this bill includes justice for same-sex couples. If, if gay people are included in this bill, I will fuck in the face. I will fuck in the ass. I will just fuck the fuck over all these millions of undocumented immigrants in our country who need help, who need to be able to come out of the shadows, all the dreamers. Rubio hates gay people so much. He will fuck all of those people to get at fucking us. The same day this story broke, Mark Rubio was asked about the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which would make it illegal to fire someone just for being gay, lesbian, bi or trans and he said he is against it. He is against ENDA. He is against marriage rights. He's against repe repealing DOMA. He's a, whatever it is that gay people need, Mark Rubio is against it. He's our mortal enemy and trust me, when he runs for president, the same groups, Log Cabin, Go Proud that endorsed Mitt Romney – who wanted to amend the U.S. Constitution to ban same-sex marriage will be telling us to vote for this motherfucking fuckstick. The corn pickers will be back. They will be digging through Mark Rubio's shit to find the one kernel of corn, the one inconsequential vote he took on something that vaguely touched on the rights of LGBT people and we will be told that that one vote should be given more weight than this bullshit. Then ensuring binational couples continue to be forcibly separated by DOMA. By Mark Rubio saying that people should be able to fire people for being gay. Don't listen to the corn pickers in four years. Do not forget who Mark Rubio is. And we'll get no better because it will be Rand Paul if it's not Mark Rubio. So I'm just putting that into your heads now because I want you to remember this, gays and lesbians and bi and trans people. When those homo con fucksticks are trying to get you to vote for this bigoted fuckstick in 2016 for Mark Rubio, remember this day. Remember him saying he would sink his own bill. Remember him saying you should be fired for being LGBT. It should be legal to fire you. And when the log cabin boys hand you that kernel of corn, flick it back in their faces. Your calls, your questions, your comments coming right up. Hi, Dan. I just had a quick question. So I was just having a date, led to sex. That was fine, and we're in the middle of sex, and he basically just goes and asks, so have you ever had anal? Like, he's about to whip it out and start going for anal, and I was kind of like, um, hell no, because it's the first time we've had sex and, like, our second date, and, I mean, I have had anal before, and it's not something that I would necessarily be opposed to, but I kind of feel like it was a little rude to, A, 
asset, like right in the middle of sex while you're going from behind. And, you know, it's a little out of the blue. And also, I don't know, we don't really know each other that well. Maybe something like anal should be kept for, I don't know, maybe when you talk about your fantasies or something like that. Is that just me? Am I completely crazy to think that that was maybe a little rude, out of the blue? I mean, I'm I'm pretty open to all sorts of things, but I don't know. It just struck me as like, really? We've been having sex for about, oh, five minutes now, and it's the first time, and like, I hardly know you. Does that really seem appropriate? this juncture just wondering well i guess it depends on if you feel that anal is an upgrade or not just you know among the options that two people might enjoy when they're rolling around in bed um clearly you think anal is above and beyond the call of booty that anal is extra credit that anal is something that you might want to do that you kind of regard it as a little bit kinky and a little bit extreme and something you might want to do is when you knew better somebody you felt really invested in emotionally and it's riskier for you physically, maybe emotionally. And so uh, anal is for lovers, not brand new lover. Anal is for someone you know and like and trust and all that's legit. Your feelings about anal, totally legit. Um, you know, In a gay relationship, you know, a gay one-night stand, often anal is the default, right? Uh, unfortunately, I think – and I have said a million times and sometimes gay men yell at me about it. I don't think anal should be a first date activity. Call me fucking Sister Dan, whatever you want to call me. Call me uptight. But I just don't think you go diving into butt. So I'm kind of with you, I guess, that he went right there and got you into a position where he's looking at your asshole and asked if you'd ever had anal. Maybe not the time. I do think regardless of how sexually adventurous you are or kinky you are, like the first couple of times you kind of want to knock vanilla out of the fucking park. And then you can start as you – said talking about your fantasies. The only thing I don't want to agree with you on is how large a violation you seem to be inflating this into being, that you guys were having sex. And there's two ways that people make requests about sex, sex acts, what's going to be on the sex menu. They can make the request before and they can make the request during. And what you don't talk about and what I would be very curious about is how he reacted to your no. That seems totally relevant. If he said, have you ever tried anal? And you said, yeah, I have, but it's just not something I'm comfortable doing with a new partner. And he was like, all right, cool, whatever. Let's keep having the fun that we're having and knock the vanilla out of the park. And then I don't think he necessarily did anything too wrong. He just excited and threw something on the table, asked for your consent, didn't just start poking around your hole, your back hole, your spare hole, your butthole, didn't just start going for it. He asked. See if he could obtain your consent to see if anal was something you enjoyed and you said no, presumably, and you don't mention how he reacted. And so, yeah, maybe it's not OK that he asked and like I said, I don't think it should be a first date activity. It's not something I would do with a new person. But I don't know if your anger is justified because you do not include that detail about how he reacted to your no. He asked anal something you're interested in, asked for your consent. You said no. He did what? His reaction should inform your decision about whether he's ever welcomed back into your bed or ever into your butt. If he reacted like a petulant, spoiled child who felt he was entitled to your ass, yeah, don't ever have sex with him again. If he reacted like, hey, I made an ask and made a request and she said no and that's cool. Glad I asked for her consent and didn't just go for it because I wouldn't want to do anything non-consensual and the rest of the sex was awesome. 
and he dropped it, then maybe you should welcome him back into your bed. And maybe one day he could earn your ass. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm calling to give you two thumbs up for your book. Listen to the whole thing in one sitting from Audible. Loved it. Two quick things that I wanted to respond to and is it are sort of parenthetical, just small things. Um, you're talking about when it's not okay to cheat. And one of the times you said it's not okay to cheat is after your wife has a baby. Completely, of course, agree with you for many reasons. Obviously, that's true. You don't want to endanger the welfare of the child by endangering its mother's state of mind. Um, dreadfully terrible for the kid, for the mother, all, mother all, all of a sudden be crazy. And, and bad for the kid, obviously, for the same reason. Threatens the kid, threatens the mom, and threatens the dad if he's the one considering cheating. Because his whole future might get fucked up by having a fucked up kid who has a fucked up mom because he cheated. But I wanted you to acknowledge, um, for the sake of helping those guys not cheat, that there is a tremendous testosterone burst that, ha- that seems to happen for a lot of guys after their wife or girlfriend successfully has a baby that makes them want to go out and fuck. <laughs> I know this from personal experience, and I've seen a lot of guys have the same reaction. It's sort of a wild, you know, chimpanzee, gorilla kind of moment. Whoa, I just had a fucking baby. And yeah, let's go get somebody else pregnant, you know. And you you want to acknowledge that that may be a real chemical response that happens in the male body and give it its proper validation. You know, say, look, I know it's going to be hard for you guys to resist, and you may feel this come up in your body, but don't act out this why. It'll fuck up your kid, it'll fuck up your life, it'll fuck up your, your wife. But acknowledge that it'll, that it'll be harder maybe than any other time. You know, it's already hard enough not to cheat, right, as you say many times. But particularly then, bizarrely, for some guys, I mean, some guys might be the beautiful guys that just, you know, want to attend to their wife and do everything that's needed, and that's great. But there might so this caller, other callers, is talking and talking and talking about something that I wrote in my book about cheating. There's a chapter in my new book, American Savage about cheating. Uh, and everyone who listens to this podcast regularly knows how I feel about cheating. Cheating is always wrong, except when it isn't. Except for those times when it isn't wrong, cheating is always wrong, except for those times when it is okay. And of course, those times when cheating is absolutely positively the right thing to do. But in the book, I go into circumstances under which cheating is not okay, circumstances under which if you cheat, you are a CPOS, a cheating piece of shit. And one of the things I throw out there is, your wife or girlfriend has a new baby that you participated in creating and she's sort of out of commission and exhausted and has an infant hanging from her tit all the time and doesn't want you hanging from her tit at the moment. And at those times, those new baby times, it is not unreasonable for you to be expected as the male partner who has made a monogamous commitment to go without for three months, six months, even a fucking year and enjoy your pornography and enjoy cranking it out. And if it's okay with your partner, enjoy the occasional massage with a happy ending, whatever. Just don't, which would be cheating, which would be not be okay, right? New mother, no cheating, not okay. Anyway, this guy wants me to acknowledge that new dads, new baby in the house, testosterone levels surge and he must fuck. And so he'll go fuck other people. So maybe cheating's okay when there's a new baby and an exhausted new mom with a blown out pussy because she just shoved a kid through it and baby hanging from her tit. And it's okay for him to maybe go cheat because he's going to knock his testosterone. All right. I'm directing you to ScienceMag, ScienceMag.org. Just Google ScienceMag and fatherhood decreases testosterone. Humans are probably the only species on earth. I'm reading – 
who nurture their young for 20 years or more. For men in particular, the intensive demands of parenting can come as such a shock that a built-in biological mechanism has evolved to help men cope with the change. A new study shows that becoming a father leads to sharp declines in testosterone, suggesting that although high levels of the hormone may help men with a mate, testosterone-fueled traits such as aggression and competition and wanting to fuck everything that moves – I put that in there myself – are less useful when it comes to raising children. So caller, you're full of shit. You may be horny. You know, you new baby. You can still be horny. Terry and I were horny after we had a new baby. We were both dads, uh, but you can't pin it on the testosterone and you cannot claim without any evidence that testosterone levels surge when the research that we have, the data that we have shows the opposite to be true. Testosterone levels fall. Uh, Hi, Dan. Okay, so I am a 26-year-old straight woman. I have been on and off with a really great guy um, for the past eight months. We were off a couple months, but things are back on track. We've been back together for, I think, three months. So things are going really well. We're really sexually compatible. He's a little kinkier than me, but it's all been really good. He's into, we're kind of doing the BDSM um, sub thing, and it's been really fun. I had never really had any experience with it before, so it's stuff that I wanted to do. So he's kind of been slowly leading me through it, building up, um, and it's all been really good and just super fun. And now... He wants to sort of take things to the next level, and he wants to watch me have sex with a man, another man. And, uh, like, I... (laughs) Ah! So, um, it's something that I've definitely fantasized about, but it's a big deal to me, um, and I'm really, really scared to even talk about doing it because... When I was 19, I was uh, I was sexually assaulted. But I mean, which makes things a little more complicated. And I was sexually assaulted um, by a woman who, by my female gynecologist, which is super weird and awful. And I've talked to um, counselors, I've talked to other doctors about it. Like what happened was definitely not normal or okay. Um, and I'm actually in therapy right now, and I'm. I mean, I'm in a place where I totally feel comfortable having sex with him. I really trust him. Um, and it's something that he definitely had to earn. And um, things are going great. I just don't know how to sort of explain to him that even – it's just scary. And I just know what happens when things go wrong and what it feels like to be violated. And I don't know how to talk to him about it. I don't know what to say. I, I guess it's something that I'm not ready to do right now. And I don't know how I don't know how to tell him that it's something that made me feel really scared and 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 uncomfortable. And I don't think he wants me to feel uncomfortable. I don't think he is so callous. I, you know, he's an articulate guy and he's a smart person. But right now, like, just him even asking about it has brought up a lot of really, really bad memories. And I don't want to shame him or make him feel guilty for bringing these memories up in me. It, but it's been really hard to even sort of put in my mind and I I don't know how to sort of explain to them that I'm nowhere near ready for something like this. And it just makes me really angry because I feel like if that hadn't happened to me, I would be in a place where just things would be so different. And that's really hard for me to reconcile. My first reaction when I listened to your call was that things really can't be going that great or your relationship with this guy can't be that great or he can't be all the wonderful things that you've said he is. If you're afraid to tell him 
the stuff that you just told me and everybody else listening to the podcast that this fantasy of his, while you don't want to shame him about it and if you had a sort of a different life experience or you're in a different place, might be just fine and fun for you too. It's just not anything you can do right now because of this past trauma and how it left you slow to warm to people um, and that you know being intimate with someone and being sexual with someone for you, you know, the bar is set a little higher. So even to please him, you're, you're just not able to jump into bed with some rando dude that you don't know and don't trust. You should be able to say that to somebody who is wonderful and caring and articulate and intelligent and sexy and into you and wants you to be happy. All these things that you said that he is. You should be able to say what you said to me to him. It should be easier maybe to say what you said to me to him if he's all those things to you that you say that he is. So why can't you say those things to him? Well, because you're a woman with girl parts and you were socialized not to disappoint men perhaps or – you're so sensitive to feelings generally that you don't want to make him feel bad about bringing up something that threw you back into these past traumatic experiences and didn't re-traumatize you entirely but made you feel anxious and you don't want him to feel guilty about that and blah, blah, blah. And so you stand there paralyzed and he's running his mouth about this fantasy that makes you feel uncomfortable and because you don't want to make him feel uncomfortable, you're not telling him that that fantasy makes you feel uncomfortable. You're going to have to tell him eventually and then he's going to feel worse at that moment because he's going to realize that you were uncomfortable with this all along and that he kept running his mouth about it. And if he is nice and kind and wonderful and loving and intelligent and articulate, he's going to feel dreadful, Be not because he did it on purpose but because he was doing it and the last thing he'd want to do is really hurt you. And right now he's really hurting you. So tell him – that that's a fine fantasy. A lot of people in BDSM relationships share it. There's a lot of you know, hot wifing and cuckolding and three ways and partner sharing that goes on. And in a lot of some BDSM relationships, the dom can lend out his sub and it can be very sexy for everyone. But this isn't sexy for you. Not right now. Tell him. Tell him. Even at the risk of making him feel bad. And you just – all you have to do to inoculate yourself against the accusation that you're somehow – Shaming him for this fantasy is to say, I'm not shaming you for this fantasy. It's a fine and common fantasy and if I was in a different place, maybe I'd want to do it. Maybe I'll be in a different place in a few years and I'll want to do it. But right now, I can't even think about it. So let's move on to some other fun, hot, fine fantasies. And if you can't bring yourself to say this to him, then I can only come to one or two conclusions. One, he's not the nice person that you say that he is or two – you have a hard time sticking up for yourself sexually, advocating for yourself sexually in the moment with a partner. You need to break past that, particularly important to break past that inhibition if you're doing BDSM as a sub. Really important to break through that inhibition. Got to advocate for yourself. Got to stick up for yourself. So there's either something wrong with him, not as nice as you think, not as nice as you told me he is. There's something wrong with you, something you need to get through and work past, which is that inhibition about advocating for yourself. And again, crucially important that you be able to do that when you're doing dom sub bullshit, dom sub fun and games, wonderful shit with somebody. Hey, Dan, long-time listener. I have a question for you about kids and internet porn. My nephew is 14, and my sister has noticed that he's been looking at porn a couple of times and wants him to be more discreet. And she's asked me 
um, a 48-year-old gay guy to have this conversation with him because he doesn't want to have it with his mother, obviously. And I'm just looking for a little advice about what to tell him. He's 14, he's a good kid, but, you know, he's curious. So what do I say? Um, basically, I bas- want to basically say there are things your mother has a right not to know. That's the gist of it. But I want to know if you have some thoughts about that, seeing as you have a 15-year-old. Yes, there are things a mother has a right not to know. As my mother frequently said, as I have quoted her here on this program a million times, there are things a mother has a right not to know. So it's really good for a mom not to fucking snoop. I don't know if your sister is snooping around, poking around, bringing up internet browser histories unnecessarily, clicking through the links to see what's going on with her son. But if she's doing that, then she's violating her own right not to know, that she has to turn a blind eye. She has to resist the urge to check in on everything he's looking at. Um, so the first convo I would have if I were you would be with my sister. Like is he leaving things open on the computer where you can see it and can't ignore it or are you deep diving into his browser histories and digging through his own personal laptop or his phone looking for evidence of what you know to be true that your son is a 14-year-old boy and is beating off to something. If she's doing that, then the problem is hers. What I would say to him, the nephew – if I were you, it's what I said to my own son. Porn bears about as much resemblance to sex as action movies bear to dinner plans. Like it's kabuki sex. It's heightened. It's exaggerated. And a lot of it – and I said this. I think it's important to say to little straight boys if your nephew's straight. A lot of it is just shot through with anger and hostility directed at the objects of desire that are on display in it. There's a lot of porn that is produced for people who cannot get laid. And a lot of people consume porn are people who cannot get actual partners. And so you have to be on your guard. You have to be a smart consumer of this media and not succumb to that anger and that misogyny and that viciousness that can be in porn because you're going to get laid. That anger porn, that like I hate women shit, bitches, hoes, sluts, that's porn made for guys who can't get laid. (laughs) To put that in an adolescent's Head, I think, is important. Kind of inoculates them a little bit against that sort of fury that is shot through a lot of pornography. You also want to say everything else. Bury your masturbatory routine. Use your imagination sometimes. Don't just look at porn all the time. You're going to see people doing shit in porn that people don't do in real life or don't do often or most people don't do. Double penetration is an Olympic level sex act and not everybody gets to go to the fucking Olympics when you're talking about diving or sex or anything else. So just get in his head so that there's a filter then in between the porn on the screen and his eyes that he's thinking critically about what he's taking in and that beginner sex doesn't look like that. When he first becomes intimate with a partner, it's not going to look like that Uh, nor should it necessarily. It may not ever look like that. And in conclusion, you tell him to delete his web browser histories because his mother's a snoop. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-something bisexual woman. I worked in, um, in the sex industry for a few months in my early 20s as a stripper and a peep show girl. And I wasn't very good at it. Um, I'm not a good hustler, which is why I didn't um, stay in the industry longer. But it has influenced some of my ideas about sex work, mainly just being more open-minded about it. So my question is, when I'm dating someone, 
is it appropriate to tell them about my past? Is it necessary to disclose this information? Um, I've had two kind of serious relationships in the past several years, and neither of these people really had experience with sex work. And I disclosed my history to both of them a few months into our relationships, and neither of them handled it very well. Like, the guy I dated basically called me a slut, which sucked. Um, And the woman I dated kind of fetishized it and, like, wanted me to give her lap dances, which I just normally wouldn't want to do. So I'm kind of wondering, in the future, um, is it necessary for me to disclose this information? I don't really... I don't feel like it's something I want to keep a secret, and it's not something that normally comes up, but in a close romantic relationship, um, at some point, I may eventually want to tell someone. I just don't want to deal with their icky reactions. So you only did this stripping for two months, and you were bad at it, and you didn't like it, and you stopped? Well, I would say it was more like three months. But um, And how long and ago? Yeah. And how long ago was it? Oh, gosh. I mean, like 14 years or 13. So there's really no need to disclose this necessarily. It's not like something that's haunting you or is going to follow you. You don't have friends or family. They're going to out you if you marry somebody and then they're going to go, oh, at the wedding toasts. And when you were a stripper, remember that three-month period? And we never thought you would meet a lovely person and get married. Um you're not so you don't live in fear of being outed every day about this, right? No, no, not at all. Conversely, you don't feel like you should have to hide it. That you don't feel it's something you should be feel ashamed of. Exactly, and sometimes it just comes up, like you know, in a dating or romantic relationship, someone might share and you know their opinion of strip clubs. Or one time I went to a strip club, and you know, and I just have this like different experience. Uh huh. And I'm wondering, you know, and, and in those times I described, I would have said, oh, well, you know, I actually worked there once. And, you know, it's like people's opinions or faces just change right away. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. And this happens every time or just in the cases of these two relationships? It's just, it's just those two relationships, but those are the two main serious relationships I've had. Uh-huh. Um, and now yeah. let's, let's examine those reactions. You told it to the guy and then he's like, you're a slut. Yeah, that was horrible. And, and his, had he been to strip clubs? Had he ever employed a stripper? Um, uh, gosh, he may have been to a strip club. Yeah. And it's so ironic because um, we ended up breaking up because in part because he went to a prostitute like without telling me and <laughs> – could have predicted that. I, I, honest to God, I could have <laughs> predicted that. That if his reaction to your disclosure is to retaliate against you and slut shame you, that this is somebody who's got issues and problems. And uh, of course, of course. Yeah. You know, if he yeah. looks at somebody he's dating who's lovely and has, you know, an, an interesting, nuanced, complicated sexual history and has some sexual explorations and is so threatened by that, he's also attracted to that. But he wants his girlfriend to be a Madonna and he wants his horror to be a whore. And so a girlfriend yeah. who's a little blurry or gray or nuanced or complicated or a fully three-dimensional human being with a sexual history of her own is a threat to him and his bullshit 
false dichotomy about the way women are supposed to be all good or all bad. And this is reminds me of like talking to my friends who have HIV. This has come up a lot on the show that when you tell somebody mm-hmm. you, had HIV, you have HIV, you're telling them one thing about you and the way they react tells you everything that you kind of need to know mm-hmm. about them. So the fact that he had that reaction and then you were rid of him or you could have been rid of him sooner. You only got rid of him after that violation. Right. You know, it was actually kind of a superpower on your part. You can say, I, I was a stripper for a few months. I didn't care for it and I stopped. And if that person says, oh my god, you're a slut, you're like, oh, really? Goodbye. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Uh, you won't do. <laughs> you, you are not smart enough, emotionally intelligent enough, kind enough to ride this ride, pointing back at yourself, and I'm out. So in, yeah. in, in, you know, you've had these two negative experiences. And the other sort of the, the reverse, where the person fetishized your strip mm-hmm. club experience and that made you feel uncomfortable. And I'm curious why that made you feel uncomfortable. Why? Um, I mean, I just didn't want to give a lap dance. I felt like she, she was like, Oh, so now you can do this. Right. And it's like, you know, I did it as a job. It didn't, like at the time when I was doing it over 10 years ago, maybe there were parts that seemed sexy you know, or titillating about it. But at this point, it's like, no, I don't want to have to dress up and wear a sexy outfit and give you a lap dance. I just, I don't want to have to feel obligated to it. And I almost felt that she was saying, oh, you've done this in the past, so you must want to do it again. Do it now. You know, and she she wanted me to give her one for her birthday. And I just, I just didn't want to. I just didn't want to have to do it. So in a way, when you – sort of they had the same reaction but different volumes. In a way, when you told him you had been a stripper and done some lap dances, he called you a slut. And in a way, when you mm-hmm. told her that, then she could see you as not much more than a stripper, that you'd sort of been knocked down in both of their estimations. I mean I would say it's it's more nuanced with the woman. Mm-hmm. But but maybe a little bit like, you know, the sex part of our relationship was very fun and exciting, especially at first. And then, oh, it's this new other exciting part to my sexual history. God, see, um, part, of, part of me thinks – part of me is on her side that, you know, that wasn't something you enjoyed doing in the context of a strip club and those sort of commodified relationships with creepy dudes mm-hmm. or whatever. But maybe it could have been something that – between the two of you would have just been sort of fun and sexy, but it sounds like it dragged you back to a time that for you wasn't a happy memory. You said you didn't like stripping and she wasn't very right. smart not to tap into that, that she was asking you to do something that you didn't like. But, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are doing lap dances for their partners and dressing in sexy outfits, you know, with sexy being very subjective and who knows what that means from couple to couple to couple. But doing and performing for their partners in ways that doesn't make them feel diminished. And clearly this makes you feel diminished to be asked to return to that time when you were a stripper. I guess, you know, I'm not against dressing up and wearing, you know, cool outfits. But the fact that she only asked me, like, after I disclosed this to her made me feel really uncomfortable. Why? Um, Why? I'm trying to understand you. Why? Wait, 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 wait. What if she had asked you to do that before she knew? What if she had what said, if she had? yeah, if you hadn't disclosed yet and she had said, oh, I have this sort of stripper fetish thing and would you give me a lap dance and dress up sometime and act like a stripper and give me a lap dance on my birthday? What if she had said that without knowing? Hmm. Then I would have 
I would have felt more okay about it. You know, like I might not have been excited about it, but it wouldn't have felt like a, like a, oh, I expect you to do this. I assume you'll, you're going to do this uh-huh. for me. It sounds to me, uh, yeah. it sounds to me like you almost have a little bit of residual shame about that period of your life. Mm. Just a tiny bit, just a, just a, just a, you know, just a sprinkle. Because if you would have done it for her had she not known you were a stripper, but then when she did know that you had done some stripping and she asked, you felt like, oh, I am nothing to her now but a stripper or she's only asking because I had stripped and and it feels somehow demeaning or humiliating in the context of her having this knowledge. But if she hadn't had that knowledge, I would have been totally fine with it. That says to me that you may have some issues with how you're perceived for having done this. Yeah, I felt – I felt that she was judging me in a way. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. But I felt that she was judging me somehow, uh-huh. you know. Did you, you could have said to her, would you have asked me to do this if you didn't know? Right. And then see, yeah, how, see how she felt. And what you may have heard is, well, it wouldn't have occurred to me to ask before I knew. But now that I knew you, this is a part of your sexual history and a part of who you are, what made you up. As a person, a part of your life history, I kind of wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to, I, I wanted to meet that side of you too. Like you could have had a conversation that elicited from her a response that made you feel more comfortable about doing it for her. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, and maybe that's something I'll take into the future, like in future relationships. Because I don't want you going um, forward where you know you don't want to be in a situation where whatever reaction someone has to this info about your sexual history is the wrong reaction. If they think you're a slut and they slut shame you and they're negative about it, uh, you hate them and how awful. If they're kind of into it, even titillated, oh, that's so awful. You know what I mean? Because you're not going to get a neutral reaction to I was a stripper. You're just not. You're going to get some sort of response. That's true. And I think that – the negative response people, get rid of them immediately. The people who right. are titillated or like, whoa, fun, cool, tell me more mm-hmm. or could we do that sometime? You need to sift through those people to find the ones who are into you, into it because it's part of who you are, part of what made you up and, and separate those people from the people who just then see you as an object and a stripper and you're diminished in their eyes or you're damaged goods. And so they're just going to milk you for these sexual experiences and then get rid of you. But a positive response can't leave you as angry and upset and dejected as a negative response. So you're saying so – basically what you're suggesting is like let's say my next relationship, you know, if or when it comes up like strip clubs, you know, and let's say I just close down the person says, oh, wow, cool, awesome, or hey, give me a lap dance. You're <laughs> suggesting, you know, maybe it's just – have more of a conversation and be like, oh, would you have suggested that, you know, two days ago or, yeah, you know. Yeah, draw, draw them out. But even if they said no, I would never would have thought of it two days ago. But now that I know that's something that's a part of you, part of your history, I thought it might be cool to experience that with you. And then at that moment you could say, well, I really didn't enjoy it. It's not something right. that when I was doing it was particularly fun. And But even then, you know, maybe it would be fun in the context of a relationship as a shared fantasy with somebody you know and like and trust as opposed to some stranger with 20 bucks in his hand in a strip club. Right. Right. All, all I'm saying – I'm not telling you what you have to do, what you don't have to do. I'm just saying I detect the sense that whenever you disclose this, the other person is going to have the wrong reaction whatever they do or say. And that's – 
that's about your own shame. That's projecting your shame, that you're detecting judgment where you know, negativity and judgment where there may not be negativity and judgment. Negativity, you want those people out of your life. People who slut shame you about it, gone. Eh, they're disqualified. But people who have a positive or a titillated reaction, so long as they're not dehumanizing you and so long as you're not suddenly a two-dimensional thing to them and not a human being, mm-hmm. you shouldn't automatically disqualify all those people. Because I'm curious. I'll ask you, what's the right response when you say that to someone? What do you want to hear? I mean, the ideal response would either be, honestly, like another sex worker or former sex worker being like, oh, yeah, I did that too, and then, you know, commiserate. So, like, non-sex worker response would be, oh, that's interesting. What let you do that? Or how was that? Or did you like it? Did you not like it? I mean, I guess just more of a listening response. Okay, but that's not a boyfriend or a girlfriend response that you're describing. That's a therapist response. That's interesting. Tell me more. How did you feel about that? You're not going to get that kind of neutrality from a sex partner or a romantic partner. Right, right. You're going to get a slut shamey, like I would never, I never could have imagined dating a stripper. Oh my God, reaction. Or you're going to get a hot, woo, let's put on some music. Yeah. Like it's either going to make you less attractive to someone who's romantically into you or more attractive to that person. Hmm. Okay. But, but if what you want is, hmm, interesting, tell me more. You need a therapist, not a girlfriend. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm not sure I'm so much ashamed of my past or it's just more like, wow, wasn't a great experience. Like, I think I wanted it to be empowering and it just wasn't, you okay. know? And I think that's what you say when the person says, let's do it. Like if the person's titillated and wants to try it, like, you know, it wasn't really happy for me. It kind of didn't make me feel very good. And then see what that person says. Like maybe they can give you a lap dance. Maybe there's a way for you to to re-experience that stripping, giving someone a lap dance in a way that is empowering and does make you feel good. Maybe if you were doing it in the context of a relationship with someone who liked you and liked you in part because of your whole complicated history and didn't like you despite it. Okay. Yeah, so I like that idea. You have to live with this and roll with this, you know? Yeah. So, and, and so in general, like in response to my initial question, you don't feel like it's something that, you know, I don't necessarily have to like keep from someone. I don't think you should. To, I don't think you should have to keep it from someone. You have the option of keeping it from someone. I think and I've said okay. before to, you know, women with their numbers, women are unfairly judged based on their numbers of sex partners. In a way that men aren't. Men with 30 sex partners by age 25 are studs and women with 30 sex partners by age 20 by age 85 are whores, right? So I think mm-hmm. women in, in that context have kind of a pass on you know, rounding down, taking out all the blowjobs and they weren't sex partners. Those were handshakes with my mouth, right? That a woman can round down uh, and, and kind of get away with it. So if you feel like you're going to be unfairly judged and you just want to bury this in a memory hole, like stuff it down the memory hole and never bring it up and not talk about it, I think you have that right. But I don't think you should have to hide it. And you know, when you're with somebody romantically and you have a relationship with that person, you want to be loved for who you are. You want to be known by that person yeah, through and through and for your entire life experience. And you don't want to feel like you have this sort of Damocles hanging over your head and when this comes out, it's over. They're going to be really mad at me and – I've sort of actively misrepresented myself all those times. It'll begin to eat at you. All those times strip clubs or strippers came up and someone said something negative and I said nothing. Yeah. 
And that just that, yeah. that, 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 that's an acid that eats away at your soul after a while. And that's going to make a long-term loving relationship complicated and difficult. Yeah, that's a good point. So you don't have to disclose, but you should for your own sake, not for the sake of the motherfucker, not that he has a right to know, <laughs> but because if that person reacts negatively, fuck that person. Move on. Find somebody who is neutral, that therapist reaction that you're hoping for that you're never going to get, or find somebody who's into it and excited about it in a way that honors you and honors your history and doesn't make you feel bad. Yeah. No, I, and I like your idea of, you know, it's also in my control of like how to respond to, to their reaction. And I can, you know, I can say, oh, no, I actually didn't like it. And no, I don't want to give you a lap dance, but here's what else you can do. You can give me one. <laughs> yes. Give it to me right now. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hello, Dan Savage and the tech savvy at risk youth. 30 year old female here, uh, married, been with my husband for about eight years, married for about three. And I found myself in an interesting situation. Of course, that's why I'm calling. To put it bluntly, I had an affair about seven months ago. My husband found out. We talked about it. It was not pretty. We worked through it. Things are going pretty well. What I have a lot of, that, of angst about is that for like the past at least year and a half, I've wanted to have an open relationship. This is something I trended towards in college. I had this kind of stuff. I had threesomes and all this other stuff. And um, just in like craving variety, he's not really open to any sort of open thing or like monogamous or anything like that. But this other guy... I know it sounds fucked up, but I almost feel more fulfilled with him around-ish. Um, he lives like 3,000 miles away, but business brings him to where I live maybe three times a year. So do you think that it's bad? Am I like continuing to be a cheating piece of shit? If I like see this guy two or three times a year, it makes me feel like I get my kicks, my variety, my like fantasy life on the side, it makes me feel more satisfied. And then I, I can like stay in this marriage almost. I don't know. I just have been running this around in my head over and over again. I can't figure it out. I need an objective mind, Dan Savage. Um, so any, any advice you have would be awesome. Joining me by phone to talk about this call and a few other issues, Daniel Bergner. He's the author of four books, including his most recent one, What Do Women Want? Adventures in the Science of Female Desire. Tracy Clark Flory, writing at Salon, said, This book, how do I put this without sounding hyperbolic? This book should be read by every woman on earth. Uh, I've read the book. It's terrific. I would add that it should be read by every man on earth, too, gay and straight. Uh, so thanks for jumping on the phone with us today, Daniel. Uh, Dan, it's great to be here on your show. Okay, quickly, you know, what women want, as I understand it from the Maggie Gallagher's and Brian Brown's of the world, is they all want one man whose sexuality they can police and contain. And what they want is a monogamous commitment and an assurance that their partner is never going to look at another human female ever again. And it is easy for them as women to never desire uh, sex with anyone else ever again. They want safe. They want comfortable. They want security. And they want that one sex partner for life. And here we have this woman calling who wants more than that. Is she some sort of freak? I am so very not surprised by her call. So just one uh, note, and, and then we should talk about her call. 
You know, for so long, we've been fed this idea that men are programmed by evolution to spread their seed, to be promiscuous, and women, relatively speaking, programmed to seek one good man. So far from the truth, it's such a convenient and comforting fable for men. Science is telling us something very different, and I think ultimately very empowering about women's desire. So what is science telling us that's different? Telling us that women are at the very least no more made for monogamy than men, perhaps when it comes to sex, even more troubled by monogamy than men are. Okay, my head is exploding, right? I, I'm the, I, I just said today on the radio, uh, talking about the difference between gay couples and straight couples and monogamy, is that you know, gay male couples least likely to be monogamous, straight couples more likely to be monogamous, lesbian couples most likely to be monogamous. Obviously, it's men that have a problem with monogamy, gay or straight. And you're telling me that women have a problem with monogamy too? So why aren't lesbian that, couples the least likely to be monogamous? Why gay male couples? Right. That is what I'm saying. And sort of two levels of, of response to, to what you just asked. One is we can't just look at what is when we're thinking about what might be and what might be more natural and better and more about our sexuality. And I think you and I both agree that sexuality is very central to who we are as human beings. Because of the stories we've been told about women's sexuality, we kind of assume that what we are compressed into, constrained into, and this may be particularly true for women, uh, is supposed to feel natural, and that just isn't so. Turning to lesbian couples for a second, Lisa Diamond, a great researcher, gay herself, said to me toward the end of our many conversations that led to this book, you know, more and more lesbian couples are exploring what they are preferring to call polyamory because it still allows for that sort of terminology of love rather than, she said, just acknowledging what it is, which is the desire to have other sexual partners. Mm -hmm. So I think we're seeing from all sides, if you look at if you look at those desires, as Lisa describes them, if you look at experiments that Meredith Chivers does, sort of contrasting the desire for strangers among women, for strangers, as opposed to sort of handsome, trusted, intimate friends, and of course the strangers kind of make the desire graph leap. You can look at it in all kinds of ways, and over and over again, you come to the unavoidable conclusion that monogamy is very much not, sexually speaking, not the natural choice, not the easy choice for women. And in a sense, we've burdened women with being the social glue. We've burdened women with this idea that monogamy should be easier for them. And it kind of it creates a real dilemma, I think, for women who know full well that in terms of desire, Monogamy may not be working for them at all. Okay, let's talk about this caller really quickly. Clearly, monogamy is not working for her, and it is working for her husband, or her husband wishes her to be monogamous or can't wrap his head around being with a woman who isn't monogamous to him. What would your advice be to her in this situation? You know, I, I reacted really emotionally to this on two levels. One was she didn't mention whether 
kids are involved or are going to be involved. And so I just wanted to speak to that for a quick second. Please, please do. I get in trouble whenever I do this, by the way. Whenever anybody writes me with a problem like this, my first response is always, are there kids? Do you have children? Because that really impacts the, the, the my advice and what I'm going to tell them to do. And people jumped on my throat for, for that. So go ahead. I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about no, it. No, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak personally for a sec rather than as a journalist. I just – I know – firsthand that if kids are involved, the one thing that will be most painful to them is to have to deal with a parent who's been deceptive, who's lied. And whether that lie happened in the past or whether uh, it's happening in the present, it's not going to be, it's going to hurt. They will forgive you, but that pain will last. So if kids are involved, I think you really have no choice but to be candid with your partner and work it out somehow, honestly. If kids aren't involved, then I suppose it's a more complex uh, situation, and I'm less sure about the advice, but I'm completely feeling this call as pain, and I guess my advice runs still in the same direction, that, that she's not at home with herself because she's not at home with her sexual self in in the relationship that she's got, in the marriage that she's got. And it feels painful even to listen to sort of the sexual self that she's thwarting. So mm-hmm. I, There's this desire to be a good person, which has been hammered into everyone as a monogamous person. And this desire to be sexually fulfilled and to feel excited and alive and have your needs met. And for her, that's not monogamy, clearly. And And I think this is a particular problem for women who, again, are taught that they should be relatively adaptable to monogamy. And she's so clearly not. And then she's internalized the condemnation. So saying, you know, I know I'm a cheating shit, and am I a bad person to think these things and to want these things? And the answer is no, absolutely not. You are not a bad person. And somehow clearing away that baggage of badness and self-condemnation may be the first step toward thinking clearly about what to do. And maybe she needs to break up with her husband. Maybe this is not the marriage for her, that if she wants to live an honest life, that being the the person that she is, she may need to find a different partner. I think so, because especially since she's acknowledging that there's been a history here, that she's been comfortable and thrived on having threesomes and experimenting, and that goes back years, and now she's feeling sort of most alive and most fulfilled with this lover, and... That is okay, and sex is entwined in our feeling most alive, not only in bed, but emotionally. But what the culture is going to tell her is if you feel most alive with your lover, you need to divorce your husband, marry your lover, and then everything's going to be fine. And a lot of times when people do that, then they're just as bored, married to the new person who was exciting when they were the piece on the side or the sexual adventure or the danger guy, and then the pattern repeats itself. Because 
it's the monogamous structure that doesn't work for many people. And you know, I hate to say that whenever I start talking about monogamy, I always have to pause and say, you know, monogamous relationships are great. And if that's what makes you happy, you should do it. I get so much fucking mail from people who are unhappy uh, because of monogamy, because they're bored, because they're tired of each other, because there's no excitement in their life, because they're not wanted the way they were wanted when they were single or when they were fresh to each other. And I'm almost like ready to stop tinkering with the machinery of monogamy and just give people more passes to cheat if cheating is what makes you feel alive. She says, "Should I? can I cheat to save my marriage? Can I cheat and stay? And you're never supposed to say OK to that in my field. You're always supposed to say cheating is always wrong. But more and more with all these letters I get every day from couples, from women, from men who are miserable and just want a little adventure and an excitement – and then some who are actually out there getting that adventure and excitement and then suddenly have a renewed interest in sex with their partners even though they're deceiving their partners. Increasingly, I just think, yeah, we need to move to a socially monogamous but sexually not monogamous kind of consensus model where go for it. And that makes me a monster. Right. And you are a braver thinker perhaps than I am. <laughs> I still – cling um, emotionally to the monogamous model, even as I've written a book that deeply, deeply, deeply questions it. Um, okay, you tell us but, about the book a little bit. Tell us, for people who have not yet read it, like Tracy and me, tell us about the book. Tell the listeners about your book. It's a great and fascinating book, and everyone should read it. Tell us about it. Well, thanks. So basically what I do is spend a lot of time with scientists, most of them women, who are studying female desire, and then thread through the book uh, stories of individual women, uh, you know, trying to sort of find themselves, understand themselves sexually. So just a couple quick examples of those stories. Isabel, 30 years old, trying to decide, tormented by the decision about whether to marry the very attractive, adoring boyfriend who she's lost her desire for over the couple of years they've been together, or Passy, very proper Southern 58-year-old woman, loves her husband mightily but feels there's something missing in her sexual life, sort of what to do, how to grapple with that. So those kinds of individual narratives and then a lot of fascinating science. Um, I'll talk for a sec about Science with Women, and, and for then for another uh, moment with uh, our near ancestors, monkeys. So, you know, one of the um, experiments that I really found fascinating was done with speed dating. And usually in speed dating, the men approach the women. The women are sitting still. The men come up and go down the line, introduce themselves, and then everybody marks a card. Do they want another date? And how do they feel about the people they've met, do, you know, do they feel any desire? And in general, the women are much choosier and the men much more promiscuous. But of course, the setup has exactly mirrored our cultural uh, kind of architecture. And what these two ingenious researchers did, flip that around, have the women do the approaching, and the change is almost immediate. It's fascinating. Suddenly, the women are choosing as many next dates as the men, uh, feeling as much desire as the men. And it just shows you how we live under these cultural constraints. I think women particularly uh, do almost without even realizing it. Just another funny example. Um, 
book is mostly women, but I take this detour out to this primatology center. And until recently, we thought male monkeys, the aggressors, male monkeys, the initiators in sex, take off the blinders. It's exactly the opposite. So I follow this one female monkey, Deirdre, who, if anyone's doing the objectifying, she is doing the objectifying of the males she stalks. And the primatologist who runs the center has to cycle out, get rid of the males every couple or three years because the females get bored and no longer want to have sex with them. So it's a real eye-opener for kind of what's inside us as human beings and what might be sort of in the genetic uh, makeup, uh, you know, of women. And maybe women like to go back to our caller to just be comfortable with that, acknowledge that this is who we are. Um, so back to her dilemma for a sec, I felt that she has one advantage she's not realizing, which she has really done some or begun to do some brave self-analysis with thinking back to her college years, thinking back to those threesomes, thinking back to who she is, and maybe she should just be honest with her next partner um, and not just go into that, you know, stay with that next guy and enter into a monogamous relationship. As you say, that could be a huge mistake. Like, why not just be who she has discovered herself to be? I love that you said her next partner. We seem to have come to an agreement that she needs to leave the man that she's with now if he can't allow her to be the person that she knows herself to be sexually, that she cannot be – she's either going to be in an honest open relationship or she's going to be in a dishonest open relationship where she's in – he's monogamous and she's not. He's She's cheating and he's not or maybe he is too. Who knows? You know, Stats say likely or she should go for it. If she's young, if there are no kids, fucking go for it. Go for honesty and openness and what you really want, what will really make you happy instead of being tormented all the time with this image of yourself as a cheating piece of shit. Uh, Daniel, really quickly before, you let, before we let you go, one of the most fascinating things that you covered in the book and it's such a touchy subject, I just wanted you to talk about it for a minute, is the ubiquity of rape fantasies among women. And I get calls all the time. I get letters all the time from women who have these fantasies uh, of, of being raped, of non-consensual sex, that they feel tremendous guilt about. They feel as if they're complicit in rape culture and that there's something wrong with them and they're very deeply damaged. And I don't think a lot of these women who are writing to me realize how common this is. And you go into it in the book. Very, very common. Um, I think often troubling to women. Let's just underline up front, no means no, no means no is going to remain so. None of this discussion is a backing away from that. But I think there is a value to exploring this honestly, exploring this as a window into desire while knowing that what we fantasize about, what we desire in that sense is not necessarily what we want in real life in all kinds of ways. I have all kinds of fantasies that I don't actually want to enact. But it is okay to fantasize in all sorts of ways, including about being overpowered. And there are all kinds of reasons you know, we may not have time to go into why those fantasies may be such a turn-on. But, you know, the politically correct... And the erotic often don't go very well together at all. And in fact, they're often completely opposed. If we're going to be erotic beings, we're going to have to let go of 
what feels to us like the right thing. Mm -hmm. Which doesn't mean, you know, if you have a rape fantasy, you should set out to be raped or that you even had a secret desire to be actually raped. That the reality of rape is very different from the fantasy of rape and what you're tapping into with the fantasy of rape as you unpack in the book is very different than contemplating or even approaching, tiptoeing up to the realities of rape. Um, anyone out there who's listening, who is a, a, a female listener of mine, who has these fantasies and wants to really read and have them unpacked in this fascinating way and the larger issues addressed and hopefully feel better about them, should really read, as Tracy Clark Flory said, every woman on earth should read Daniel Bergner's book, What Women Want. Daniel, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. Thank you, Dan. Follow Daniel Bergner on Twitter. His handle is at Bergner Daniel. And you can follow him on Facebook, Bergner Daniel. Um, anything else you want to leave us with today, Daniel? I actually just want to pay a tribute to you. You are so blunt and candid, whether it's in your writing or whether it's on talk shows you appear on or here in our conversation. And I am admiring, bordering on in awe. Thank you. <laughs> well, I've, I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time, and I was also a fan of The Other Side of Desire, the book that you wrote about kink, which I thought was one of the smartest things I've ever read about kink. So anyone who liked this book, the new book, What Women Want, if you want to keep reading Daniel, pick up Other Side of Desire as well. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you. Hi, Dan. My name is Emily. I'm a 31-year-old female. Uh, I'm calling about some friendship advice. I've been friends with Joe for about 12 years. We've never lived in the same city, so phone calls and emails and trips to visit. Um, Joe and I had a very open friendship. We talked about sex and family, anything and everything. Uh, about five years into our friendship, we had sex. Um, it happened during a weekend visit. Um, this was about eight years ago now. That weekend of sex was enough for me to know that I could never feel any romantic love or sexual passion toward Joe. Uh, just good friends. He met a girl that same week, and now he's married to her. Um, he decided not to tell her about our rendezvous because it only happened that one time, and he got serious with her soon after that. Uh, about two years later, she snooped in some old emails and she found out anyway. She was angry at me and thought I wronged her, even though I didn't know her at the time. Um, she told me about her first marriage and she was abused and cheated on while she was fighting cancer. Um, she was also angry at Joe. I wrote her an email defending myself and told her I respected her right to be upset and I gave her some space. Um, she did eventually get over it and forgave me. Um, my friendship with Joe was a little strained, though, because it was clear that she was uncomfortable with our very open and close friendship. Um, fast forward about five years, she snooped again and found some old emails and didn't like what she read. Um, she found a picture she thought showed too much skin. Uh, it was nothing above PG-13. Um, Joe had asked me about something, uh, about a tattoo I had gotten, and I sent him a picture. Um, she read an old email discussion between Joe and I right before they got married, and she took offense to it. Um, it was nothing more than me checking in with my good friend Joe and asking if he was happy and doing the right thing um, because he had previously insinuated to me that he was not happy. Um, so she wrote me again this time and asked me to stay out of their lives. She finds me inappropriate and detrimental to her marriage. At the time, she was seven months pregnant when she wrote the email, so I respected her wishes. Uh, that was a year and a half ago. So Joe still calls on occasion and tells me that she'll get over it, things will be fine, uh, but I know that they're still in counseling because of her anger and her mistrust. Uh, we have mutual friends who are staying impartial, but they, they do know what's going on. Uh, we don't all see each other very often, but big get-togethers, weddings, trips, uh, it's, it's very awkward. Joe talks to me, and I, I just feel uncomfortable now. Um, I miss my friend. Some ways I'd rather not be his friend at all than have this strange, censored acquaintance. Um, his wife is a conservative Catholic, and she doesn't believe in most of the things that I believe in. 
Um, I, I don't really know what to do. I've never wanted to steal him or break up their marriage. Uh, she's a very nice girl. Um, I don't intentionally flirt with him. I'm, I'm very happily in my own relationship. I've just always had more in common with Joe than with his wife. So my gut says to leave them alone and tell Joe to stop contacting me until they can work it out. I don't know if this is the right thing. I don't know if I should email her. So what should I do, Dan? I'm going to try to be brief. I think you should leave Joe the fuck alone and wait patiently the six months or a year or 2.5 years tops until Joe and his crazy, controlling, vindictive, snoopy wife divorce, which is coming. She's going to keep tightening the screws until one day Joe bolts and says, I am done with this bullshit. And then you can be friends again. And won't that be awesome? Hi, Dan. Um, I have a question about uh, being about tact, uh, being someone's special guest star in a three-way. So I'm a adult baby pervert type kind of guy, and I went and I was the special guest star for a couple of guys in a big city near me, and I had a really really awesome time with them. I had a really awesome three-way with them, but uh, one of the guys I had a far better rapport with than the other partially because the other guy that I didn't have such a good rapport with is kind of on the asexual-y side and not really that into kind of physical intimacy in the way the other guy was. I'd really like to meet up with them again, but more in particular the guy who was not really that asexual. Uh, I really want to ask them, but I don't want uh, to come off like I'm trying to like get in the way of the relationship or be uh, a bad guest star. So do you have any tips for me? to comport that conversation in a way that was tactful and nice and that might mean I get to have kinky sex with them again. Okay, thanks so much. I'm going to be uncharacteristically brief with you as well. What you do is you send an email to the one that you had the better rapport with and you just say, hey, I really had a great time and thank you guys. And if you guys ever want to play again or if you ever want to play with me solo, I would be up for it. I would love it. And then it's on him if he wants to see you on his own, if that's even something that's permitted in his relationship, to go to his partner and talk about it. You don't have to contact the partner and say, may I please play with your partner because you and me, we didn't click. But me and your partner, we really clicked. That's the guy you clicked with's job if he wants to see you again on his own. And you can put that bug in his ear just by sending that email. It was great. I'd play with you both again. It sounds like you would want to play with them both again if that was the only way to get into the one that you clicked with's pants again. And you just put it in his ear. Or I can play with you solo if that's something that's permitted in your relationship. And then wait to hear from one or both of them. Hi, Dan. I am a mid-20s young technology guy living on the West Coast. And I have been in a great relationship for maybe three, three to five months now, maybe closer to five. And about week or month two we ended up expanding our relationship a little bit and invited a co-worker in. Now, I'll give you a little background. My girlfriend is a couple years younger than I am, and so was this girl. And I had actually asked my girlfriend what her fantasy was, and she responded with the threesome. So it was kind of started with that, followed by maybe who, and that's how we got talking about certain coworker. Anyways, so the coworker seemed really excited about it. We had set up a nice time where she would come over for drinks. Well, turns out there was some other issues with 
my girlfriend at the time, certain times of the month. Anyways, we ended up going forward. It was really fun. We were listening to music. Um, we had set some nice ground rules that there would be no sex between me and her. But because of my girlfriend's time of the month, she didn't really get any play. And she and I both kind of played on this other girl. So afterwards, we thought it was okay. Everything was good. We actually set a time to meet a couple of days later to have some more fun. And we never heard back from her, period. Um, as in ever. So that has actually caused some issues between the girlfriend and I. And I'd kind of like to get your feedback on that and where to go. Mainly because now it's, you know, she's really upset. She feels like she brought somebody in and they took advantage. It was almost like just to have me. Um, and I don't really feel like that, but I don't know. I, I'd like to get your feedback on this. Well, I'm having a run of brevity. This is very unlike me. I will be brief. I'm going to be brief about everything except how brief I'm being. I'm being very expansive about my uh, sudden burst of brevity. Uh, look, you had a three-way and it didn't work out. The unicorn that you had over either didn't have a really good time or she sensed your girlfriend's seething silent resentment during it and isn't into getting together again. Hence, she's not responding to your emails. And so what can you do about this? You can do squat about this. You can't force this person to come back for another go because your girlfriend feels like she didn't get her share because she was on her period. You guys just have to like chalk this one up to must have done something wrong or three ways aren't her thing or being the unicorn wasn't fun for her in the way she thought it might be fun for her and we're going to do a little self-assessment, make sure we weren't doing anything explicitly assholey that turned her off or made her mad and then go find somebody else to do this shit with that we want to do, uh, that we might have a better rapport with or click with in a way that we didn't click with this girl. But she's not answering your emails, which you can interpret as she's not communicating with you or you can interpret that as actions are communicating with you and she's telling you or the both of you that she's not interested in another go and so – Take no for an answer and move the fuck along. Hello, Dan. This is a uh, West Coast Magnum listener of your podcast. And I'm calling in. I, I've been thinking about this for a long time, but I, I was finally inspired to call after listening to episode 345, where you talked to the gentleman who was tied up by his partner and left there and it got a little weird. <sighs> A lot of the times when I hear you discuss anything that could be remotely considered sort of edgy play, uh, or that uh, that also includes things like threesomes and special guest stars and all that kind of stuff, what I often hear is, very sensibly, I'll, I, the idea of talking it out beforehand, establishing ground rules, uh, safe words, all that kind of stuff. And I'm perfectly down with all of that. But there's something that's missing for me in this discussion that I just wondered if you have any insight into or to address. And that is very simply that sometimes when someone does something to you, does something with you sexually that you don't expect, they broadside you or they, they introduce something to you without warning, that can be just like the hottest fucking thing that there is. And I know that when I was introduced to the world of anal, when I was a young lad, it was from a woman who didn't warn me that she was about to jam something up my butt and then rim me, and it turned out to be like the most exciting thing that I've ever had happen to me. There was no warning. There was no like, 
there was nothing. There's no discussion. So I'm just wondering how you can, if there's a way for you to sort of parse for us intellectually your feelings about the line between surprise and risk, I guess you could say, for the for excitement versus the rules of talking it out and making sure everything is right beforehand, which just seems to suck some of the fun out of it. That's all I have to say. Thanks. That's a really hard question uh, because one man's happy, surprise, anal object shoved in followed by rimming is another man's deeply traumatizing experience that leaves him afraid to wipe his own ass for the rest of his fucking life. Uh, it really depends on someone's sense and sensibility. It depends on you know the person who's doing the surprising, having a high emotional IQ, being really able to read someone. Who knows? Maybe every time – she went, got close to your balls. You were arching your back and you were presenting your ass like a chimp in a way that made it clear to her that this was something you would welcome. And she was just smart enough and intuitive enough sexually to perceive that and decided to go for it at that moment based on her assessment of who you were and what it seemed to be turning you on, right? Or maybe she was just super sexually selfish. You gave no indications that this is something you might have enjoyed and she went for it and just kind of lucked out and it was super sexy for you as opposed to super traumatizing. That's the problem with the surprise move is unless the person busting out the surprise is really smart, really intuitive, high emotional IQ, that it can go terribly, terribly wrong. You know, We've got calls from people. We've had calls from people recently. Where they got surprise fucked in the ass by someone who may have been taking advantage and of course now I've acknowledged that that can happen by accident. Whoa, sorry straight guys. Didn't mean to get you all in a lot of trouble. Didn't mean to reopen old butt wounds but can happen by accident. But there have been cases where guys just went for it thinking it might be a welcome surprise and it wasn't. Uh, but you don't want to drain all the fun and mystery and surprise out of sex and people sometimes bust out a move and it works. You know, sometimes somebody produces a pair of handcuffs from under the pillow and in that moment when they produce the pair of handcuffs from under the pillow, you know, if the person that they're about to handcuff gets a wild-eyed panicked look in their eye and goes white and breaks into a cold sweat, maybe you put the handcuffs back down if you're taking in their physical cues. If you pull those handcuffs out and that person looks delighted, then you kind of keep going. So there's a way you can roll out a surprise where it's not – a surprise when it finally actually does in the end happen. You know, you want to tie the person up and you have handcuffs and you kind of brandish them and you assess their reaction. If they react negatively, you put them down. If they react positively, you keep going, right? So I don't want to give an unqualified endorsement to busting out the surprise because it's the kind of advice you have to sort of – Hope that only smart people are – all dumb people everywhere, all low emotional IQ, stupid, not intuitive, insensitive, can't read another person's expressions. All of you people right now, turn your – turn the podcast off. Take the earbuds out. Um, this is only for smart and emotionally intelligent uh, people. Yeah, you can totally bust out a surprise now and then if you're smart uh, and you have high emotional IQ. Not if you're stupid. Not if you can't read somebody's expressions. Not if you can't know a person. And you can sometimes know a person after only having been in bed with them for an hour. But sometimes you really know a person after a while. You know, you can really roll out a surprise in a long-term relationship because you just – you know someone inside and out. You know what they would welcome and what they wouldn't welcome. You know what's exciting to them and what's not exciting to them. And so you can really blow their minds. You can roll out a big, you know, giant bow on top of a car in the 
driveway kind of Christmas surprise sex thing. If you're smart, if you're dumb, you roll something like that out, might not go over so well. Okay, dumb people, you can come back now. You can start listening again now. So uh, yeah, surprises are bad. Don't do surprises. Always ask, get advanced permission and consent for everything because you just can't know what a person will enjoy and won't enjoy. Uh, so yeah, no, never surprise anybody. Never surprise jam something up someone's ass because you just – you never know if they're going to like that or not. So better to ask, to err on the side of not surprising if you're stupid. Smart people, you can probably bust a surprise out every now and then if you're smart. Hey, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 346 to the woman who's dating the guy with anger management issues. Please dump this motherfucker. I, hearing that story, I just heard my parents, and those people make bad partners and even worse parents. If you haven't dumped him already, be strong. These people are masters at manipulation, so just you can do it. You're better off without this guy, and he will not learn. You will not change him. The best thing you can do is get out of there and save yourself. Good luck. This is in response to the woman in basically an abusive relationship at 346. Your call sounded just like my parents' relationship, and that when I hear my mom describe it, it was great in the beginning, and then my dad just got angrier and angrier, and when I was growing up, everybody always walked on eggshells. And let me tell you, like several years of therapy later, the only way he shaped up his act is when I threatened never to speak to him again and change my last name. Um, so get out now. Teach him the lesson, because in the end, he will be happier for it. Uh, you know, my dad's not a bad guy. And this guy's probably not at his heart a bad guy, but he's doing bad things and you can't let that continue, all right? For your future children's sake, listen to Dan and get out. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 346, where you told the woman who's dating the guy who's got anger problems to leave him. Um, I completely agree. Um, I was that guy, uh, that girl, a few years ago. I was dumped two times in two years uh, after one-year-long relationships because I had anger problems, and uh, that's what it took to get me to change. And I said to myself, if I'm going to be that angry in a relationship, then I should probably leave that relationship rather than acting that way. And uh, I'm now married happily, and um, getting my anger under control was a struggle at first, but I'm really thankful that I had those failed relationships so that um, I was ready to be in a good relationship with the guy I ended up marrying. And we're going to leave it there. Thank you all very much, subscribers, to Savage Lovecast Magnum. We appreciate it so much. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you'd like to record a call or a question for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. You can also leave comments on each and every podcast at www.savagelovecast.com where there's a comment thread, a dedicated comment thread on each show. So if you've got something you just got to say and get out there into the world, go to savagelovecast.com and make sure it gets out there. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.